This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is one of my favorite guests of all time. But, you know, not just as a guest, but just one of my favorite people on the planet of all time. And that is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page or over on Twitter at Peter Kessler. Also, be sure to check out Peter's website, peterkessler.com, to book him for an event and to listen to some of the archive episodes of his, his podcast, which is called Reading the Break, which is fantastic, folks. You can also link to it from our site, nextonthetea.net. We've got a link right over there back to Peter's site. And no one knows the history of golf better than Peter does. Among the many great quotes that I've heard about Peter over the years, and again, thankful that Peter's been a part of the show for several years now, I want to share two quotes with you. If you weren't fortunate enough to see Peter's show, Golf Talk Live, when it was on the Golf Channel, it was by far the best golf talk show ever. And Golf World Magazine accurately called Peter Golf's Walter Cronkite. No better way to describe Peter than that. And almost a year ago to the day, PGA.com put together golf's seven greatest commercials and infomercials. And the Perfect Club, which was at the forefront of the hybrid revolution, a company Peter founded and was president and chief club tester for, PGA.com said Peter is one of the greatest storytelling voices in, in, in the history of the world. Again, no better way to describe Peter than that. I couldn't agree more with all of that. And I thank Peter for coming back on the show. Hey, Peter, how are you, my friend? Where did you see this thing about the golf club? <laughs> I saw it on PGA.com. Seriously, that's wild. How are you, buddy? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's nice to hear your voice, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. What's going on? Ah, well, you know, I I wanted to start our time to obviously tonight being, or today being September the 11th, a very difficult day for all of us. I wanted to start by getting your memories of this day 17 years ago. Well, I remember it just as vividly as I remember the Kennedy assassination. I was 11 years old, almost 12 years old when that happened in November of 1963, and I was in sixth grade, and I had one of the first transistor radios that had a little ear plug that you could put in, and I was uh, at my desk, and I was listening to music through the little ear pod in class, which I shouldn't have been, when the music stopped and an announcement came that the president had been shot. So I put my transistor radio away and then a moment later a teacher walked into the room and whispered to my teacher and then we were told what happened and we were let go and we went home and I spent that weekend alone. My parents were away and I remember watching everything on television as it unfolded, of course, and then, you know, uh, Jack Ruby uh, killing Lee Harvey Oswald on the Sunday a couple of days later. And so that was, you know, no, everybody who was alive then remembers exactly where they were. And for young people like me, you know, a month later, the Beatles hit. And so for young people, there was a, a quick, renewed sense of optimism in the land which spawned a whole generation of activity. But it was so amazing that one of the most horrible things that's happened in our history should then be, you know, a a moment later um, is set aside for a young group of people by something that was brand new in the world and is as important today as it was when the Beatles first hit the scene in late 1963. So it was quite an amazing time. And 
And this, of course, September 11th of 2001, I was home, and like other people, um, somebody called me, and we turned on the TV, and then I hooked up with the people at the Golf Channel, and they told me that ultimately I could make the decision and as to whether we would do a live show that night. And, you know, I thought about, you know, how Broadway theater went on during the wars, and they played baseball during the war, and they still had golf tournaments during the war, and they still had entertainment, and I thought should we do entertainment? I just thought that this was so cataclysmic, an event with so many people lost. And at that point, it was so early on in the proceedings that there was so much more information to come. And so it was unfolding at that moment. So I said, let's not do a show out of respect. And so we didn't. And then it was curious that a few weeks later, they, uh, one, then, of course, they canceled the Ryder Cup, so it was supposed to be in the odd year, and that's why it's in even years now. But they didn't cancel the first Dunhill Links, which I went to play in just a few weeks later in Great Britain, and people wondered if they should fly over. And that was preceded by an event I was invited to put on by Prince Albert of Monaco probably the last week of September of one, And I went over for that, and there were turned out a thousand people and Gary Player was there and they built a par three hole. This was all for charity. So it had been long organized. And so they changed the focus to what had happened on September 11th. And they constructed in the middle of town, a par three hole of about 115 yards, literally in town and put the green in front of the Monte Carlo casino and put the tee about a hundred yards back and Gary Player was there and all kinds of people there and Gary's hitting shots and we had already known each other at that point so we had a great time and and so it's the the comes to be the Saturday night and it's the black tie dinner and there's a thousand people and somebody comes to me at the beginning of the dinner and says would you give the after dinner speech and I said well nobody said anything I said you know we're just sitting down to dinner this is something I would have spent you know a day writing and they said, oh, please, you know, whatever comes to you. And so I said, okay. So I I went up and I I said some things and I, you know, tried to remember what Roosevelt said about uh, December 7th, 1941, a day that would live in infamy. And, and I thought about Patton's in the movie saying we're going to hold them by the nose and kick them in the ass. And, and I just thought about, you know, we're not going to let anything ever interfere ultimately with our freedom and there were people in this room from all over the world, which they were. So, I, yeah, I, and, and I found myself half the time looking down and seeing Roger Moore, the actor, sitting right in front of me, in front of the stage. And um, and I tried to get with him later because he was on a TV show in the very early 1960s um, with a woman named Dorothy Provine. I think it was called 20th Century. And he played this, this kind of gambler type. Uh, riverboat gambler type called Johnny Angel, and the woman was stunning, and I'd always wanted to ask about the woman, and for some reason I hadn't met him, even though I probably would have thought I would have, luckily enough to be in some of the circles I bounced around in, so I did talk to him later, but so I gave that speech, and then I went up and played in the Dunhill Links, and the week was dedicated to um, all of the people, you know, who had been killed on September 11th, and um, there were moments of silence and, and flag lowerings and yet celebrating the game of golf. It was, uh, it was quite an amazing time. Peter, thank you very much for sharing those stories. Yeah, it, 
it was an amazing time and an amazingly sad time for for so many. And our thoughts and prayers are certainly with the the families and for the folks that were impacted uh, directly by you know the events that day. Peter, I want to switch gears a little bit, and as we look ahead to next week's Tour Championship, a guy who's not going to be there is Jordan Spieth. Finished outside the top 30 for the first time in his career. Got five top 10 finishes this season and 23 events, but no wins. Curious to get your thoughts on uh, on what you've seen so far from Jordan this season. I think he's the new Phil Mickelson, quite frankly. I, I, you know, I feel like based on what we've seen that he's going to have like two or three spectacular weeks a year. And then he's going to hit it short, and he's going to hit it crooked, and his weak his grip's going to be a little too weak, and he's going to discombobulate and hit the wrong club, like at the Open Championship on the sixth hole at Carnoustie, which was insane. I mean, here he is in the last round with the lead, playing a tight par five. I've played it 20 times, so I know the whole cold. And all the way down the left side is OB. It's fairly tight, and the ground is hard, so if you... If you hit one that's running to the left, there's a good chance it'll just keep running until you're in big trouble. And and then if you try to go towards the green, there's a little thing of water, and, and, there's, and there's a big, big, big gorse bush to the right, which ultimately he found. And everywhere is trouble. And he took out a three-wood on a downhill, side-hill lie with a little clump of grass behind it. And I was talking to my oldest son on the phone, and I said, this has eight written all over it. And he said, no way. I said, for one dollar, I'll bet you he makes it, and he made an eight. And of course, that's when the Golf Channel elected not to show you the end of the hole because they put it on a split screen, exactly when Tiger was taking the lead and Jordan Spieth was losing the lead. But never mind. I just feel like Jordan's a little bit inconsistent. You know, he's not long enough to get away with some stuff that the longer guys can get away with. And you know, and the longer guys not only get away with it, but they use it to their advantage because. They hit it so far that they just have scoring clubs last, left. And, you know, and Jordan's, you know, one one beat shorter in distance than they are. And he's a little more crooked than some of the guys who were a little bit longer. I, I would bet you statistically, without looking it up, that Rory, who's significantly longer, is probably also quite a bit straighter. And that puts Jordan at a great disadvantage. And, of course, he hasn't putted well this year. He didn't putt particularly well last year. So he's been trending poorly with that over the last few years and is very, very streaky now, I would say, in that regard. And I think he's got a lot of tension when I see him arrange himself over his putts. And he misses putts that he shouldn't be missing, that recreational golfers don't miss. The the six-inch thing was crazy, Bill. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody do that, like ever, ever, ever go up. Like, no matter how bad Mrs. Dinkowitz in her first round did not wave over the top of a six-inch putt. So, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of Jordan. Here he is not in the Tour Championship. Um, obviously, you know, he's going to be, you know, playing in the Ryder Cup and, and – uh, you know, he's he's probably a fun guy in the locker room, but at the end of the day, he's tough to play good golf, and nobody knows who's going to play how when they get over there. But, yes, it's been a curious year, but unfortunately, I'm not so sure this isn't the Jordan we're going to see going forward, a streaky kind of a guy. And, Peter, as you mentioned, you know, coming up on the Ryder Cup, right, two years ago, he and Patrick Reed were teamed together. And it seemed like Patrick carried Jordan on just about every hole, because I don't recall Jordan playing that well a couple of years ago. So do you expect Furyk to pair them together again, or do you think you should pair him with someone else, someone that might be able to get him going, whether that's a 
you know, his good friend, Justin Thomas, or maybe a Phil or even a tiger. Does he need to switch that up to find some sort of uh, fire or excitement or something to kind of maybe snap Jordan out of it and get him going? I don't think there's any such thing as that because, you know, remember, this isn't a group of promising 12-year-old players. I mean, these are 20 of the 25 best players in the world, of which Jordan's among them. So, you know, this isn't a thing where, you know, something, you know, has to happen. You know, Payne Stewart, you know, playing born in the USA to bother the Europeans. That's, you know, that that kind of thing might get you going. But, you know, in terms of, you know, who he's going to play with or who he's not going to play with, Nobody knows anything about anything about anything. Nobody knows how they're going to play tomorrow. Nobody knows how they're going to play in France. Nobody knows how they're going to feel. Nobody knows if they're going to be all making their best swings. That's why they let them play. There isn't such a thing as figuring out the winner, even though earlier this year my son came to me and he said he's in a pool. And I said, well, I don't believe in picking winners. I just like, I just want I, I said, I just think like, think of it as a movie. I just want to watch it unfold. I don't want to worry about the ending. I don't want to pick for people. I don't want to say some guy's going to make a double. He's going to make six, but nobody knows. So I said, all right, what's going on in the pool? And he said, well, I'm 36. Can you take a look this week? So meanwhile, I've done six of the seven last seven weeks. And now we're third in the pool with only one week to go. And he has two picks for the Tour Championship, and we I made him save Bubba for some reason, because maybe Bubba wasn't playing good at the time or something. I think we got Bubba and Keegan next week, and he's in third place. And so, you know, if he can, if he can, if he can hold this spot, we'll uh, uh, have a great dinner. And But the problem with this whole betting business is, and the problem with this whole who do you think is going to win business is, is you become emotionally invested in your pick. Like on some of the weeks where I would make a pick for Christopher and the pick wasn't playing well, it detracted from my ability to enjoy the event unfolded because my guy wasn't doing well, so I wasn't appreciating what was actually happening as much as I might. And luckily, I kept picking winners. I picked Molinari, I picked Brooks Kepka, I picked uh, Bryson when he won last week. I just it was crazy, but um, but you, yes, you become emotionally invested. So all of this stuff with FanDuel and all of these other things, I'm I'm violently against because. I think it takes away from your enjoyment of watching the thing unfold. It's like saying, you know, there's going to be a murder mystery, and here's who's in it. You go, you know, who who do you think, you know, you don't do that. You just you just let it happen. So that's how I feel about watching golf. And Peter, with the timing of the captain's picks, you know, that was set up. We had three coming a couple of weeks ago, and then the last pick coming yesterday. Do you think did Furyk get it right with Tiger, Phil, Bryson, and now Tony Fino? Oh, yeah. I mean, if he hadn't picked those guys, I mean, really, you would just, you know, take them in the back room and kick the stuffing out of them. I mean, <laughs> there was no possible other way to go. On the other hand, my friend Thomas did not do a good job. Okay. You can you you totally you know can go with Poulter and Stenson. You know, Poulter, or you know, we don't need to go through all the reasons, but net net, he's a positive for the situation. I don't believe that much in, you know, the, the spiritual leader and all that garbage because they have to go out and actually hit the shots. The spiritual nothing will make a 12-footer for you. You know, it just like, has nothing to do with anything that happened in the locker room. It's unrelated. And so, uh, yeah, so I think uh, I think Thomas made uh, two, two big mistakes. I think, um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, so you got to take Poulter for a million good reasons. And he won this year, and he's playing good golf, and da 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 and he's great on the team and whatever. You know, and Stenson, too, even though he hasn't been exactly knocking him dead, but he's still a world-class player. No way with Paul Casey. He's a weekend disaster. He's like Ricky Fowler. Those guys play a great 36 holes at places. What the hell happened to him on the weekend? It was like Webb Simpson. I had picked him one week for Christopher, too, and I was like on this big run. And Simpson was leading after 36, and then he finished like last or something. It was insane. You know, and some of these guys, I said, I don't want to pick that guy. He's not going to be reliable. And that's how I feel about Paul Casey in the Ryder Cup. I totally feel that way about Sergio. I could beat Sergio right now. Well, it'd be very close. I mean, he's not playing, you know, world-class golf right now. I mean, you know, he hasn't done anything in a while, and his putting is atrocious. I've never seen so many different strokes over the course of 18 holes. I mean, I knew when I tried to putt that I think to myself, what's the ideal stroke for this exact putt? And that every putt, therefore, is going to be a little bit different. You're not always making the same stroke. you you know, you one you may want to change your tempo, or you, or you, you you want to be you may want to be a little firmer without hitting it eight feet by. I mean, just you know, each putt is unto itself, and I just feel like he is disasterville from all distances, and you know, and he's got some stuff working inside of four feet that's really unwatchable. And so, yes, very bad pick, and he should have picked Rafa Cabrera Bayo because. He played really good in 16, and he's been playing good golf, and he played good the last few weeks, and he wants somebody who's playing good. That's the only thing that you can do, is to pick somebody who's playing good right this minute. So, like, when we were betting, you know, in this pool with my son, I picked, you know, Bryson had won the week before, and I said to Christopher, you know what? You haven't picked him yet. Let's take him next week. He's young. He could actually win again, and lo and behold, he actually ended up doing it. But there's no way to know these things. You can make some guesses and stuff. And that's usually because there's 156 guys in the golf tournament. So, yeah. So I. So that yeah. The Casey thing, Disasterville on the weekend. Sergio Disasterville overall on paper because it's two teams instead of 156 players, which to me is 156 teams. This time you actually have two teams, and I think the Americans on paper are favored if the guys generally play their game, but nobody knows if they're going to do that. So to to just take that a half a step further, right? Because the European team's got five rookies, right? Five Ryder Cup rookies on their squad. Does that play into anything? Do you, do you take into consideration having been there, been in that arena, had that experience, or does that mean nothing? I think it's completely a nothing because – you know, after they hit a shot or two, that's all over. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't carry on through the week. You know, you know, if you're in a, if, you, if you're ever in a play in, in school or on Broadway or anywhere where you do live television, you know, um, I, 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 I lost my train of thought. What the hell did you just ask me there, Chris? <laughs> About the Ryder Cup rookies. Does that make any impact? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, okay, so. You know, there there may come a moment, you know, when you're the lawyer and you say, may it please the court, and, you know, you might be nervous until you get that first phrase out, or when I did TV, or when you do radio and you say, hi, this is Chris Mascara, once you get that first thing out, you know, then you're off and sailing, and the same thing is true, you know, for professionals in uncomfortable situations, in that it doesn't remain uncomfortable, so, you know, John, my happy, my friend, I... We were doing an interview on TV once, and I said, so what was it like on the first tee of the first Ryder Cup of the whole deal? And he goes, oh, man, he goes, I stood over that ball, and he went, I was trying to figure out 
how you moved the club away and up into the sky. And he said, then I was going to try to figure out how you make it go forward and hit the ball and keep going. He said, it was insane. He said, and then it was fine. So that's the thing. Then it's fine. But the matches are only 18 holes, and you don't want to lose a couple of holes early because you you know you came out of a shot because you were a little nervous or whatever but you know they're playing in paris it's a very weird dynamic i mean i don't know what kind of crowds are going to be there i think there's going to be a lot of curious people as many as are going to be like actual golfers i wonder how many people actually come in from great britain to watch that how many people will come from the rest of the continent to paris i mean it's a big slap from wherever you are and in, in Europe to, you know, to show up at this golf course. So I don't know how crowded it's going to be. I don't know how vocal it's going to be. And it's certainly not going to hurt the Europeans because the people in the crowd, well, whoever's there, are going to cheer for those five rookies and they're going to boo, the, you know, our rookies. And, you know, but that lasts for two seconds and then they're going down the first fairway and then it's quiet and it's peaceful and the caddies just relax, take a deep breath, we're cool, we got a ball in play, you know, and then and then they play. I mean, even Jack Nicklaus is nervous on the first tee. Think about Tiger Woods. He's nervous in every tournament he plays on the first tee. Think how many bad tee shots we have watched him hit Augusta National in the last, you know, whatever, you know, since the last time he won. How many times has he hit it absolutely dead left after he's striping it on the range and one foot cuts, one foot draws, and then snap a Rue City, you know, all the way down into the middle of the ninth fairway, and he's got to hit it over those trees. Completely insane. So, you know, guys get nervous. Jack handled it great. Tiger couldn't control his swing after his peak years as well when he got nervous. But Jack was always able to control his swing no matter how nervous he was. And he, you know, figured that he was as nervous as everybody else, but that he was more likely to keep playing his game than other guys were likely to play their game. And he just felt that if he just kept doing it, eventually everybody else, the ride would be too fast for the gang. Peter, away from the Ryder Cup, I want to get your thoughts on Brooks Kepka. Guy's got a very odd record. Four wins on tour, three of which are majors. We would typically expect to see someone with three majors with at least close to double-digit tournament wins, but not having the majority of your wins being a major. What do you make of, of Kepka's record? Well, you have to take into account the fact that he's played a bunch of international golf and he's won in some other places. And so he's probably a more hardened competitor than his tour win total would suggest, forgetting that three of the four major championships. But, you know, so, you know, he did kind of what Peter Uline did, did a lot of stuff in Europe, did a lot of stuff in other parts of the world. Um, you know, so he came to this tour late-ish, and he's, what, 28 still right now. And so, you know, the last 15 months have been super-duper. And, you know, I don't understand the world golf rankings because, when a fellow can come to the final hole of a golf tournament, do bad things, and then go to a playoff and do worse things, then they go, congratulations, you're number one. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. What did Justin <laughs> Rose do to get to number one? He won a world golf championship. He didn't. He hasn't won a major since 13. And this other fellow, Brooks, has just won three in the last 15 months. For sure, that makes you number one. Whatever the system is, it's a not good. Three majors, 15 months, nobody else on the on that scoreboard with you. You're the number one player in the world. It's not even like a maybe. So you know that thing is a complete nutso. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that the I think that Brooks is going to win a lot of golf tournaments because 
it's a really, really good golf swing. And yes, he's you know he's he's in great shape and he's very athletic, but he's not a linebacker. He's you know really built for a golfer, but he's not really built for a linebacker. But you know the dude's a stud, and you know and very much like Dustin Johnson and these guys. You know I think Dustin's going to last a while, and he's probably a young thirty-five. But I, you know, Brooks has got three majors, and Dustin only has one, and. I would definitely take Brooks's record of four wins and three majors and Dustin's 19 wins and one major for sure, for sure, especially given the seven-year you know, age differential of Brooks being younger. So I think he's going to keep winning golf tournaments. It's I don't know how consistent a putter he will or won't be long-term. I, In my view, there isn't enough evidence to me. To me, the paper trail is only 15 months old, and yeah, he's obviously putted great. You know, when three majors, you know, without looking up the statistics, if he didn't putt great, it's not doable. So, you know, so we know he's been putting good, and we know he's been doing it for a little over a year for sure, and we know he's won in other places in the world, so he's probably a good putter. So, you know, if he can keep doing that, um, and he can keep hitting his scoring clubs and his wedges the way we've seen him hit in the last 15, 16 months, you know, he, you know, he's got a chance to do, you know, some amazing things. Now, you know, you can't say now he, you know, he's on track to now win so many majors over some period of time. Again, it doesn't work like that. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how anybody's going to play. You know, Dustin Johnson goes over to the Open Championship in Great Britain, you know, and like, you know, everybody's, you know, writing, oh, he's going to win by 100 shots and this and that and the other thing. And he had lob wedge into every hole, you know, for 36 holes, and he missed the cut. I mean, you just don't know how anybody's going to play. You know, Rory McIlroy being favorite at the Masters is so insane. You get on the second tee and you aim down the left center and you're trying to hit a cut. If you snap it, you make a triple bogey eight. That's the way that hole sets up. You make a triple bogey eight in the first round. Bye bye. That's why I say nobody knows anything about anything. But I do think that based on form, Brooks Kepka is going to keep playing some good golf, and I think he's very interested in doing it. I'd like to see a little personality, though. You know, it still is entertainment. You know, they they are entertainers even though they are professional athletes they are entertainers you know and some of the athletes you know believe that and you know a, you know Joe Namath and Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer and Seve Ballesteros and Tiger Woods they get the entertainment part Tommy both understood that only so well and uh so I'd like to see you know you could give me a little personality you know the light a firecracker near his you know behind and let's get going here a little bit but um yeah but I like him and he seems like a really solid guy but you know you could be more interesting and you can give us better answers at the press conferences I really believe they should be giving thoughtful answers to the to the scribes who are sitting there, and none of this one sentence stuff or asking guys to leave and you know and acting badly. You know, I thought the Serena thing was absolutely disgraceful. I, you know, she just had nothing to do with women's rights or the fact that she had a baby. She just blew it. You know, I, I, I it's funny. I, that great expression I just heard that Australian expression that she spit the dummy. And that's exactly what she did. And the dummy is a baby's pacifier in Australia. So the baby spits the pacifier, which is called the dummy, so it can then cry. And that's exactly what Serena did. You know, she spit the, she spit the thing. So she just lost control. It wasn't about anything else. The guy was handcuffed. Once she got the warning, even though she didn't see the coaching sign, but that's not the thing. If the guy makes the sign, it counts, even if she's looking the other direction. Then when she busted the racket and she got the point, 
the guy's in a no-win position. He can't give her a soft, you know, um, take, I'm going to take a game away if you keep it up, because she kept it up. And I just thought that was bad behavior. And every time that she's done this, it's because she was losing. I remember one year she played Kim Clijsters, and it was and it was a deuce. Uh, no, it was it was match point Kim Clijsters, and 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 Serena went completely crazy, and they awarded Kim the point, and that was the end of the set, and then the end of the match because it was match point. You know, she's done that before, and she threatened to stick a tennis ball down some woman's throat and told somebody else that she was sick inside. So, you know, there's a pattern here. So I was, I don't know how I got on that, but I thought that was very <laughs> bad behavior. Um, and I, and you like people to have good behavior like Brooks does and to be interesting to being interesting would be really cool. Peter, I want to switch over and talk a little bit about Tiger and we're some, we're seeing some things from him that we're not used to seeing first, you know, he's back in contention every week. So that's the glasses half full view. And after, you know, all the things he's been through, it's a tremendous accomplishment. The glasses half empty says he's been in position to win several times, but we're seeing him falter on the back nine. Last five or six holes left to play. We're starting to see some things that we're not used to seeing from him. Do you think that's something that will just, you know, it'll come back around as he gets to play more and he's in contention more, or is it a sign of something else? Well, first of all, a lot of guys who play pro golf would take Tiger's year, you know, finishing what uh, tied sixth at the Open where he had the lead and, you know, and finishing second at the PGA Championship, contending on a regular basis, going back, in my view, to being the best iron player, uh, figuring out a way to generally keep the ball in play. Uh, he's certainly not making enough putts, and he's not doing the clutch gene thing that he used to do so well. You know, the the ten footer that keeps the round together for par, the ten footer that make lets you accelerate for birdie. You know, he's not doing those things and he reminds me of a recreational golfer who's trying to break eighty for the first time in the sense that, you know, you get to you know, there's some you know, if you're trying to break eighty for the first time, um, and you just need three fives to do it, you're bound to make two sixes and a five and, and not break 80 because you're thinking about it and you know what you have to do to do it. And eventually you learn that those holes that you otherwise would have easily made three fours on if it wasn't to break 80, you learn how to play them better. And so I feel like Tiger's there right now that he's like, right around the last few holes of key rounds and just needs to knit together. You know, in my view, when you look over somebody's sort of four-round scorecard fast, there's always a there's always a place where the thing happened. You know, you look at Jack Nicklaus winning in 1986 at the Augusta National for his sixth Masters. You know, you, you take a look at the card. The thing happened on the last 10 holes when he made seven birdies in the last 10 holes. There's usually like a streak in the thing. I remember when Arnold and I were talking about it uh, yesterday. It was his birthday, God bless him. And we were talking about uh, one of the British Opens that he won. And the, it was the worst weather he'd ever played in. He birdied like six out of seven holes. And I remember him saying, and if it wasn't for that stretch, I wouldn't have won the tournament. I never forgot that. You know, and I realized that, you know, that you look for a place in the event where the guy might have sealed it or the guy might have saved it or the guy might have, you know, early Saturday morning before things really got going, make six birdies in a row to put himself right in the middle stuff. You know, 
you, you just never know how stuff's going to happen. And so Tiger's at that place where he's not doing that, that little magical run. He's not doing the thing where he's finishing with, you know, five threes at some point instead of a messier kind of scorecard. He's just, the, the magic part is missing in the key moments. And I think it's recoverable. I don't think there's anything wrong with him. I, I think, I think again, it's like the break 80 thing. He just had to, He's just learning how to do it again. In my view, he hasn't really played golf in you know, five years. I mean, so what, you know, what give the, you know, it's like, this is great what he's doing so far. And, you know, if he can come this far, he can't go farther. You know, if somebody said to me, well, this is as good. How do you know this is as good as he can do? Why, why wouldn't it continue to get better? It's continued to get better. He played a good final round last weekend and, you know, and he's going, you know, and he's in the top 30. I mean, you know, it's not like he's just missed the top 125, everybody. I mean, you know, here he is, you know, going into the tour championship. So, you know, and, and playing some super golf. So yes, I think he's totally going to figure out that eight, 10 holes over the course of 72 where the thing's got to be turned on its head where you have the four birdies in a row instead of the mess and a couple other things like that where you make the three 10-footers in a round for pars to go with the seven birdies instead of negating three of the seven. So I think he's going to be able to do it. I certainly think he's capable of it. I love the golf swing he's making, except I just wish he would just have a little slower transition on his on his tee shots. I mean, when you watch his iron play, it's a much more three quarters more move. Even when there's a lot of energy, when it's when he doesn't get it right on the tee, I just feel like you know the the, the club face doesn't have a chance to rotate back to square when it gets to the hitting area. That he's just like got so much downward pressure instead of allowing the pressure to occur at or feeling like even past the ball, you know, like I know we used to because we talked about it, that the fast moment occurred real late, that the the whoosh was when the club was getting close to your left shoulder on the through move. And, and I don't feel like he's doing that on his tee shots when he's, when he's having problems with them. I just feel like there's a direct line from his hands at the top of the swing back to the ball instead of his hands going down then forward, then through, and up and around. You know, on his iron swings, his arms go up, then they go down, and not much faster than the speed of gravity. As Jones has dropped at 34 feet per second, gravity's 32. And then forward, he does that beautifully in his iron play, but with his driver, it's a more of a straight line. It doesn't go down before it goes forward. And, and that's called, a, you know, you're going to have a glancing blow. He knows that. Because I know if I know that, and I know I've talked to him about these things before, he knows it a billion times better than I do. It's just that I'm here articulating it on his behalf. But I know what the trouble is, and and anybody who plays golf and has watched Tiger Pro can see it too. It's not, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one with this view. You can you you can see it. You know, you know. As a viewer, when he makes the bad move on the tee shot, you know it went right before they say it went right because we all play golf and we know how it works. And Peter, you hit the nail on the head with one of your recent tweets. Again, follow Peter on, on Twitter, at Peter Kessler. You said, we've gone from DJ being an all-time great to Brooks Kepka being the most dominant player in golf to Bryson DeChambeau being the best player in the world in about a 75-day span. Is that our collective ADD on full display or how quick you know we're ready to crown 
a guy based solely on what happened about 10 minutes ago. Well, that's why I said the thing with Justin Rose being number one player is really laughable because it it was a tournament that he lost and played very badly at the end. And and then you hold up his record and you go, well, okay, maybe it's no surprise. Here's a guy about 40 years old, won nine times on the PGA Tour, and now it's 10 times and won major championship. Well, that's halfway. That's halfway to being considered one of the best of your time, let alone uh, World Golf Hall of Fame eligibility consideration, in my view. 20 and 2 would be the very least. To me, it's really 20 and 3. And Justin Rose is halfway there. Why? Because he does things like he did to finish this most recent golf tournament. So, um, And he's only got one major championship. And so he's not an all-time great. And he's not one of the best players of his time because of that record. So for him to be number one with Brooks Koepka just winning three major championships is the height of absurdity. None of these guys, in my view, are going to be number one for more than 15 or 20 minutes because it's really just revolving chairs at this point. You know, there there isn't a Tiger. There isn't a Jack. You know, if you look at Jack playing in majors from 1970 through – 1980. So that's 44 majors. So out of 44 majors, he won 10 of those 44 and he finished second eight times. And out of the 44, he finished top 10, 37 out of 44 times. And that's what you call some pretty good golf, you know, 10 out of 44 wins majors and eight seconds. That's good. So that's what you call the two hardest things to do in all of golf, which are the, hard, the, the second hardest thing to do in all of golf is to have a chance to win major championships like Jax did 37 of those 44 majors between 1970 through 1980. The hardest thing to do is obviously to win a whole bunch of them, as Jack did 10 of those and, and eight others, of course, both some before and, and some, some after. And so, uh, you know, then you had Tiger, who was capable of doing basically the same thing, we don't have that anymore. We don't have anybody who's that good. We don't have anybody who's that consistent. Uh, and and I can't make an evaluation as to whether there are any of the guys who are at the top ranks want to put in what it takes to be the number one. Is there somebody who's going to like claw and dig for that? You know, I, I don't know that that's the case. So I feel like it's completely musical chairs at this point. Jordan Spieth's a great example, very Phil Mickelson-like year, actually worse than a Phil Mickelson-like year because Phil won this year and Jordan didn't win this year. And um, Phil's actually, I think, probably played better. And um, and Jordan, you know, uh, is inconsistent. And again, he's short and crooked and he's not putting good. And so those are all problematic things. And he's got some course management, emotional decision-making issues, I think, Uh Dustin Johnson, I don't know how much he cares. I don't know how bright he is or is not. I don't know how much it matters or not. Um, but at the age of 35, you're supposed to have more than one major to go with your 19 victories. So I would say, you know, that's not an all-time great. But, you you know, you pick up two more majors, and all of a sudden we're talking turkey. Uh, you know, Brooks Koepka, the three majors, but it's only four wins. You know, it's a Bobby Jones kind of record, funnily enough, because, you know, he set aside Bobby Jones' amateur championships. He still won four U.S. Opens, and he won three Open championships. So he has seven Opens between the U.S. and Great Britain. 
Um, and he, I think he just won one tour title because he didn't play in any pro events, really. I mean, in in 30, he played in two, and the first one he lost to Horton Smith by a shot, and then he won the next one by 13 shots. This is against a bunch against uh, as a pro event in, in Atlanta, and then, uh, yeah, in, uh, in Georgia, and then he went and won the Grand Slam in 1930. But So that was the one pro event to go with his seven majors. So Brooks is on his way to a Bobby Jones-like career. If he could get to eight wins of which seven are majors like Jones, I think he's going to be in great shape. And right now it's a mix of U.S. and, and Open Championships. So he's it's off to a great start. So the jury's out on him. Justin Rose is 40. He's number one, but he doesn't not playing like number one. We'll see what he's got left in the tank. We'll see if he can win another major championship. Uh, Ricky Fowler, people point to, but he's only won four times. In my view, he's just the best player to ever win five tournaments on the PGA Tour. It has nothing to do with best player to not win a major. He's hardly won any regular events, and he disappears on the weekend. That's why I fear for uh, Thomas Bjorn with Paul Casey. I, I see a disappearing act, and if Sergio gets off to a bad start, the Ryder Cup look for the whole thing to be a major tailspin with lots of emotional stuff, we could see some shafts break, which would, to me, be entertaining. <laughs> I would enjoy seeing that. Um, so, Peter, one more before we let you go, it. and I want to get yeah. I want to get your thoughts on Bryson DeChambeau. He's he's a mathematician who also likes to play golf, and curious to get your thoughts. Can he, his protractor, and his single length golf club uh, golf clubs change the way we play golf? Uh, it's probably not for everybody, but the few people that I know who have tried it have actually liked it quite a bit. I know that my friend Alan Shipnock, who writes for Golf Magazine and Sports Illustrated, went to a set last year, and he really likes them. And he's pretty. I think Alan's a good player. Uh, it's not for everybody, you know. That yeah, it's going to be slow to have an impact, you know. If he was Tiger, maybe you know more people would try it, but. I think it's seen as a curiosity piece more than anything else at this point. I I don't know anybody that I play golf with or who plays golf who said to me I might go ahead and do that. But, you know, he's an interesting dude, which is why I like him, just because he's interesting. He's a nutter, and he's quirky, and he's idiosyncratic, but and he's slow. Man, he's slow. He's got to pick it up. He's got to pick it up. Jordan's got to pick it up, too. There's a lot of slow play out there. He's really slow. You know, and there's a lot of stuff they need to do uh, in terms of how they televise golf to get our interest level higher to to grow the game by doing a better job in presenting those golf tournaments. Uh, but I made me forget what the original question was as we're closing our evening together, which was what? So we were talking about Price of DeChambeau and his single. Oh yeah, I really yeah, I I think he's great for the game. Um, you know, he's I I, I, I you know the, with the, the hat and the, the clothes thing and. I don't like the thing against the left arm. I'm very, very against this. I wrote to Mike Davis, the USGA. I said, that's anchoring. I said, the club that you putt with can't extend at the top past the bottom of your wrist joint. Once it gets to the wrist joint, there must be no more club if you're going to putt. None of this in the left arm stuff. I really find that objectionable. I really find Longer objectionable. I really find Scotty McCarron objectionable. I don't think that Adam Scott, when he does the long putter, is actually anchoring. I think he does separate 
David Hearn is definitely anchoring. I mean, it's just crazy. And then they say to these guys, you're anchoring, and they go, no, 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 here, I'll show you. Well, the round's over. I'll, of course you'll show me. I, you know, hold your hand a foot away from your chest. Give me a break. I mean, all that stuff is nutty, but I, yeah, I think that should totally be dis- disallowed. I don't think you should have, be able to have a line on your golf ball. It's a crutch. It slows down the game. You don't have a line. Just put it on the ground and roll it. You know, let's get on with it already. And that's why I don't like these greens books or any of this stuff that slows down the game. How are you going to grow the game when you make it so unattractive with people pulling out notebooks as they play a sport? I mean, can you imagine, you know, the first baseman, you know, just putting a hole on the game. He's got to consult his notes. I mean, for God's sake, just play. Just play. That's why it's so slow. There's all these these distractions and crutches and all this craziness. But, but I think he's terrific for the game, and I'm looking forward to his career. And I think he's going to win a lot of stuff. And I think he's got a lot of heart, and I think he knows how to close a lot better than Paul Casey, and I think he knows how to close better than Sergio, and I think he's going to do a better job there than the two of them put together. Well, Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, they should listen to your show because the next good thing that happens, and we're going to have you report it for us and uh, – you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I have my website, PeterKessler.com, and there's a couple of good golf channel shows in the old days with Tiger and one with Arnold and a few podcasts that I did. And uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. I try to do mostly golf history-related stuff there now. And uh took me a while to settle down and figure out what to do there. I got a little nutty with some people. and um, So, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm working on a couple of projects, and if they come true, there'll be plenty for us to talk about, Chris. And I love being on the show, and you know I really like all the stuff when you know when the weekend comes, and you know you send out all those nice things about all the guests that you have on your show, and wishing everybody a great time and a great weekend, and peace and love and happiness. You know, and on this day, you know that's such you know an appropriate thing to bring up the fact that you know that you spread this stuff. You know, really every day of the year, and you know here we are on this special day. And uh, in American history, and a tragic day, um, and but yet those are, those are the important things today too—the peace and the love and family and folks getting along and um, and and not being divided or divisive. And uh, you know, I, you know, my my buddies, the Beatles, all you need is love. And um, and this is a really good day to September 11th to spread that message. Well. Peter, I can't thank you enough for for saying that and uh, for being being back and a part of the show. There's no better way for me to spend a Tuesday night than listening to you share your stories and your insights. And no matter how much time I get with you, it's it's never nearly enough. It always flies by. But I thank you. You're a very special man in my life, and I uh, I appreciate you very, very much. We'll talk soon. It's great to hear your voice. All right. Take care, Peter. All the best to you and your family. Thanks, buddy, and to you and yours. Thank you. That's a great Peter Kessler. And again, PeterKessler.com is his website. Follow him on Twitter again, at Peter Kessler. And, and folks, uh, they, they, uh, at the top of the, the time that I got to spend with Peter and in his introduction, again, Golf World Magazine got it right. He's Golf's Walter Cronkite and PGA.com, you know, also got it right that Peter is one of the greatest story, you know, telling voices in world history. Both of those completely accurate. And uh, I look forward to catching up again with Peter real soon.